Welcome back to Ending the Myth, and we have a very special discussion episode for everybody today. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And we're back here to talk about the 70s. We're talking 70s, baby. Woohoo! Yeah, we just had uh, two or three really long, action-packed episodes all about political economy, political violence, uh, memory, and the history of the Vietnam War. And we thought maybe we'd just take a pause and maybe go over a few things, uh, talk about stuff that maybe stuck out to us, answer some questions from some listeners, and uh, overall just, you know, vibe to the 1970s. A very, yeah. a very cool <laughs> decade as, yeah. as, now as you as you now know is it, it is a very cool decade <laughs> yeah nothing awful happened at all no just good times well i think you know the first thing to talk about is uh and this is no particular order i must say listener but the first thing to talked about and what i always think of when it comes when i think of the 1970s is the Nixon presidency. Munia, what's your relationship with President Nixon, the whole thing? Uh, your parents maybe are even too young to live through the Nixon presidency, at least as, My like, adults. My mom adult, lived through you know? it. No, she, yeah, she, I mean, she lived through it as, not as, like, a full-blown adult, but, you know, um, it's kind of like when I lived through Obama's election, right? They are like, yeah. you know, uh, not exactly adults, but still she was a, a child kid. for Nixon as a kid, right? Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> yeah right. just like uh, Hillary Clinton was a, a a kid for Goldwater or whatever, girls sure, for sure. Goldwater. Right? <laughs> oh, I'd never say that about my mom. She she actually, you know, the reason why I know so much about Nixon is because she the two presidents she talks about the most actually are Reagan and Nixon, and those mm-hmm. I think have like are just etched into her brain as in her formative years, and also just. The fact that it just really sucked, right? Um, and <laughs> and like it, it was quite a, like a surreal uh, moment to see uh, Nixon be president, and that's when a lot of um, America, I think, visibly for a lot of people, was very in your face and like in a very big state of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the reformation and shakeup of the Republican Party, get like reaching out to younger Republican voters for the first time. The Southern strategy was mm-hmm. um, implemented at that time. Uh, this new uh, culture war that really ramped up under Nixon, right? Like this was, and, and of course the Watergate scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, all of those things, I think, um, his erratic behavior in office constantly, um, <laughs> th- these were, these were things that weren't just like, you know, mundane. It was like akin to, I think, you know, Roger Stone, like helped, uh, you know, Trump become, you know, the Republican nominee and then president of the United States. And, you know, what, where Roger Stone really gained his like claim to fame, who's a, Roger Stone's a political consultant, um, was President Nixon. Like, he was kind of the bl- blueprint for that. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways, when Trump got elected, my mom really kind of pointed back to Nixon. And, you know, Nixon was, I think, the turning point along with, you know, the ushering of um, neoliberalism, or at least the start of it. Nixon kind of was that figure in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, and we've, you know, avoided talking about individual presidents in any sort of extreme detail on the show for the most part. We tried to maintain our position strict uh, structuralists here, right? Yes, you know, yes. uh, not putting too much on the personality of individuals. 
but Nixon is, I mean, he's interesting because he's present at an important turning point, but also he is one of our more just interesting personality wise <laughs> presidents yeah. and that, uh, total psycho but in a different way than a lot of other uh american presidents have been a total psycho uh let's maybe just go back to the beginning real quick and just talk about his election and i think this is you know for a lot of uh your parents are a little young to be boomers but for certainly my parents who are boomers this is when the scales i think were starting to be pulled from (laughs) some of their eyes (laughs) yeah yeah election (laughs) and uh his invoking of the silent majority right and it was this idea that there was uh even though People were mad all over the United States. They were mad about the war in Vietnam. They were upset about the state of civil rights, et cetera, right? Even though there was all this vocal energy on the left, uh, really the the true pulse of the country could be found uh, in a silent majority, a fictionally generated version the quiet of America. Yeah. <laughs> that just so happened to believe everything the American capitalist class believes. Yeah. <laughs> This has been the fixture of American politics ever since. Right? And uh, I think, you know, the silent majority, it's uh, positions differing so much from so many people in the United States. Not to say that the United States was super progressive in the late 60s or anything, but I think there were some people who thought that maybe like Jim Crow was a problem, actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. People were kind of coming around to that. Um, you know, we're starting to think that. Wow, this the Nixon and his majority opinions seem to be uh, a little abrasive for me yeah. and everybody yeah. around <laughs> me. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, Nixon coming in the the invoking of the silent majority, as you mentioned, the Southern strategy, which we'll talk about more when we talk about the 1980s. But this idea of a law and order president, right? I'm here to restore order, to punish all the people you don't like right put them in prison Mm -hmm. all those college students that you're sick of i'm gonna get rid of them right all those uh uppity blacks that won't be quiet like we're gonna put them in jail right you know i mean your grandkids who won't talk to you anymore we're gonna punish them too yeah and i mean in a lot of ways like the same energy that elected trump is you know there behind nixon you know again a minority of americans right but a vote (laughs) but you know like uh you know a large enough minority or whatever and a certainly whiny enough minority um (laughs) but yeah it's always funny when people talk about trump like this is the worst president we've ever had he's brought no dignity to the office it's like (laughs) nixon existed like reagan existed like like, (laughs) who were all just proto-trumpian figures except for like they were more political animals than trump ever was so tonight to you the great silent majority of my fellow americans i ask for your support i pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace i have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. Uh, when in office, I mean, this is the part where we can talk about Nixon is a sort of funny character. Uh, his behavior, yes, I think he described it as odd. 
uh odd is not the half of it (laughs) yeah just the weirdness particularly when you get to his second term like uh, (laughs) his his love of the movie Patton, where he would make everybody watch Patton with him over and over again and he would quote lines from it in meetings and stuff and all his advisors would just sort of stare uncomfortably at each other (laughs) (laughs) just like yeah sure mr president (laughs) alpha alpha male right there (laughs) it is it is second term his alcoholism got so bad that it actually came out later that uh members of the joint chiefs and staff had a whole uh protocol just in case nixon accidentally hit the button right and tried to launch a nuclear war they had a whole protocol to like intercept his command to launch nukes right (laughs) and so they could like be a a stopgap on that and decide whether or not they wanted to do it you know uh which is unusual in the cold war period Uh, you know (laughs) When in our last discussion, I think we answered a listener question saying uh, whether who would be the most uh, obvious president to get a DUI. And, you know, we said LBJ. Uh, Yeah. Um, And so the thing is, though, is that the reason why we didn't say Nixon, frankly, is because he couldn't get into his car. Yeah. You know, he's just like such a sloppy drunk that he's not functional enough to even like turn that ignition, you know? So, yeah, he would make, you know, drunken, angry phone calls that you could listen to to this day. I mean, you know, the most uh, like, act, you know, uh, visibly, audibly drunk president we've had uh, uh, probably up to that point, you know, outside the 19th century when everybody was just drunk all the time. So yeah, it's impossible to tell the, the difference. N- norm, you can't really compare that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was just a state of being. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, hilariously, you know, he the level of illegality that Nixon was engaged in, uh, I think sometimes because a lot of it is funny, gets uh, downplayed. But the level of criminal activity, he was just like openly, obviously, you know, criminal activity he was engaged in is pretty funny. I mean, uh, (laughs) you know, he at one point had planned and plotted with his committee to reelect the president, uh, which they call went by the acronym creeps, which is fucking hilarious in its own right. But uh, planned to firebomb uh, uh, the office of um, the Brookings Institution. Because they Based. thought, okay, go yeah, off. Because they thought there were secret <laughs> documents in the safe of the Brookings Institution that might bring the president down, and they were going to firebomb it, and blow it up. And wow! It, the plan got really far. They apparently just never got around to it. But it was never like so. Like, would have the FBI done that, or like, would that be like his own like pri- like you know secret police doing like no, what was- what is. That was uh, his special operatives that he had working for him <laughs> under the committee to reelect the president, who were a bunch of guys who some of them were ex-FBI, some were ex-CIA. All of them were claiming to be some sort of ex-FBI or CIA, although in typical right wing fashion, a lot of it was just made up. <laughs> yeah, know? cool. Like, just, just like fat guys, like just hanging out. Just, <laughs> like a snake pit of grifters yeah, drifting exactly. their way all the way up to the presidency. Yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> he had a whole system of organized bribery to organize every or to bribe like everybody from political <laughs> officials to donors to no. uh, media outlets. And yeah. they had bagmen, like specific bagmen whose whole job was just taking briefcases full of cash, right? So with a get- money sign on the on the briefcase yeah he'd get cash from like oil companies right <laughs> and they would just give him a briefcase yeah just full of hundred dollars like stacks of hundred dollar bills and he would send like g gordon 
city, like, you know, to fly somewhere to drop off a briefcase, you know, with a hundred grand in an airport bathroom. <laughs> so that like a local newspaper would do, you know, oppo coverage for him or whatever, you know, like he ran during the uh in the lead up to the 72 election, he actually had guys running campaigns for Democratic uh, nominees, right? So he was running counter campaigns for Democratic candidates, <laughs> like literally going out, pretending to be part of the Democratic Party, right? To pretend to be like working for various presidential campaigns, doing like media hits, like fly, <laughs> you know, going out flying people, throwing events and stuff like that. And they would just go out and be like, oh, yeah, I'm here for, uh, you know, McGovern or whoever, right? And, uh, I uh, want all black people to have your house. <laughs> like that's the position <laughs> of the Democratic Party right now. Uh, oh. You got to move out. All the black people are moving in. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like essentially to like whip up racist sentiment around uh, the Democratic Party, right? Stuff that's like obviously comically illegal uh even beyond just the regular illegal activity that (laughs) politicians participated um a lot of it uh like i said funny in retrospect probably not what you want the person who uh runs the largest empire in the world doing (laughs) in their free time he went to uh he went to communist china too didn't he i think he met mao and like uh i don't know if dang was like out of exile at that time but like this was like i think during the um i think doing like the uh like purge trials or something and it was kind of a big symbol of like nixon showing up to you know uh china after the cultural revolution as well um it was like Mm. just a pretty funny moment yeah, yeah, he went to China to try and pivot the Chinese against the Soviet Union, which, of course, both sides uh, took the bait on. Yeah. Uh, one of yeah. history's more embarrassing moments for uh, the left of the communist movement. Uh, maybe when Richard Nixon shows up and he's like, oh, yeah, you should definitely get in a border war with the Soviet yeah. Union. We'll send you some weapons. Maybe you should be like, wait, maybe we should wait. Hold on. Damn, let's re- let's rethink this. Yeah, maybe what we're up to is not great. Yeah, maybe we yeah. should stop. When Nixon's excited enough to like show up and, and give you yeah. weapons. Yeah, so, you know, just a world class scumbag. But it kind of gets to the, the thing that he remembers, which is the Watergate hearing. And the thing I think that was kind of interesting about this is, The 1970s, we gave you this whole story about essentially being this period of reactionary struggle, right? Of crushing the left, right? Uh, Watching the enemies flee before them, right? Hearing the lamentations of their women, etc., right? Um, You know, but in the 70s, there were also the Watergate hearings. There was the church committee looking into the activities of the CIA. There was the expose of COINTELPRO. And I think it is worth asking a little bit, like, what did all that mean? And certainly uh, people on the left at the time, uh, for a lot of reasons, were prone to believe, I mean, you'll be shocked to learn that people on the left have not been yelling, it's an op just in the age of social media, uh, but were yelling, it's an op at the time as well in the 1970s. One was that the the Watergate hearing, if you were on the right, it was trumped up just to get rid of Nixon because he was too powerful, <laughs> um, too, he is too much of a, uh, a cool guy. Uh, and on the left, there was a sneaky suspicion, too, that the Watergate hearing is somehow uh, a trumped up thing to cover up some other greater crime. And uh, I think the, the question comes up of like, why did the federal government have any of these hearings? Like, why do any of this at all? Why? Well, right? I mean, what it's I embarrassing. didn't really why do any of it. 
you well, know? I didn't really understand about the Watergate scandal is like what exactly what when someone like explains it to me in plain English, like what the actual scandal was. It was like, you know, Nixon had like stole documents from the DNC and like, you know, they were, I guess, stored at like the Watergate <laughs> Hotel. It was like just like seemed like penny document theft. Like what what well, what made it such a huge deal? Well, the irony was is that whatever he got hung up on was the smallest crime of the bunch, which was breaking into the Watergate Hotel, into the DNC offices and stealing uh, documents out of uh, the file folders. What ultimately started to come out in the hearings are things like they were going to firebomb the fucking uh, Brookings <laughs> so that's institution. Where, that's where the actual, yeah. okay, yeah. Yes, the actual scandal was uh, more in the other details that have been <laughs> conveniently forgotten the time. Like, yeah, the dropping off briefcases of money and yeah, you know, airport right. bathrooms as bribes and stuff. All of which is, you know, like I said, just plainly illegal on its face, right? Um, but the the what became scandalous about it was essentially... Nixon throwing members of his, you know, team under the bus, right? At his <laughs> cabinet, you know, his advisors, right? Under the bus to try and like sacrifice them to the scandal, right? Like, <laughs> like, G Gordon Liddy, you go take the blame for old Dick, yeah. you know, like to go out and do it. But because these are Republicans, right? These are American conservatives the second any ounce of pressure got on them, right? So the second they're put in front of Congress to subpoenaed, right, to testify or asked any questions or anything, they caved and immediately rolled over and were like, uh, yeah, Richard Nixon told me this personally. <laughs> like, like, so part of the scandal, too, was how far up it went, right? Because people were right. willing to believe at that time, oh, some people around Nixon are, you know, they're nefarious actors. Maybe they on their own got up to some activities or whatever. It was another thing entirely to come to the conclusion that it was essentially the president was running this whole operation out of the Oval Office with yeah. his direct <laughs> input. Direct, directly operations. saying so. It wasn't even like being like the godfather, you know, where he'd just kind of make body language movements and people interpret it, right? Like it was like mm -hmm. Not even as sophisticated or like a result out of that is literally no. like, yeah, uh, he, he, verbally saying everything. And because he was so paranoid, you wiretapped like all of the phones, too, apparently. Yeah. So, you know, he was like yeah, catching it all on tape. Catching it all on tape. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just the, it's the shock of playing audio tapes of the president of the United States saying, it's me, the president of the United States, here to commit crimes. <laughs> like, are we all here to commit crimes? Yeah. And everybody, like, doing a roll call, you know, yeah, like, right, one by right. one. Like, John Dean, here to commit crimes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> all right. I'm going to I'm gonna give specific details of a crime, <laughs> and everybody just say, you agree to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, really pretty funny stuff. I mean, probably should have resulted in, you know, criminal charges or whatever. Right. But, you know, obviously the uh, ruling class wasn't willing to go that far with all of it. But, you know, I, I, I think the question of why did all this happen is the fuck up in Vietnam by the time this was you know, Watergate, Church could be all this kind of stuff. The fuck up in Vietnam was apparent overdone. Right. The fuck up in Vietnam was so big. Right. The fuck up where we had to abandon Bretton Woods was so obvious and severe, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like the levels of which they had uh, just screwed the pooch over the last decade and a half. Somebody had to answer for that. 
right? I think this is the ruling class basically saying someone has to answer for this. We got <laughs> to put somebody up there and say this is their fault, right? And so in a way, and I think this is where the, the Watergate stuff gets kind of confused, is they were putting Nixon up there as sort of a scapegoat for all the crimes of America, right? Yeah, the Nixon, yeah, Nixon, right. For all the crimes of America. <laughs> and while that's an overstatement, it is not to say that Nixon was not involved in most of the crimes of America yeah. and shouldn't be <laughs> held accountable for all of those crimes, right? Uh, interestingly, as the Watergate stuff got deeper and deeper and the crimes got more and more uh, severe is when Congress all of a sudden decided to clamp down on it and be like, okay, we're, we're not going to do the hearings anymore. I mean, we yeah, got it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're the onions. We're peeling too many layers off the onion. We shouldn't get into that. Um, but similarly, I mean, you know, hearings like the church committee and stuff, all this worked to essentially just be a do over for like the intelligence. So when the church committee hearings came out, they're like, oh, the CIA has been like murdering people all over the world, unbeknownst to you, uh, and also paying the media to lie about it and putting like media people on payroll to lie about it. Uh, when all that information came out, essentially was like just supposed to, it was like, oh, but they're not going to do it anymore. So they they murdered these foreign leaders. They were involved in these you know, overthrows of governments. But uh, don't worry, they're not. It's over. Oh. We're not going to do it anymore. All right. Well, fine. The, the FBI did COINTELPRO, and like uh, we're not going to. We won't say that they murdered certain you know civil rights leaders and things like that. But they probably did. I mean, they basically went as far as saying like the FBI was certainly somehow involved in the MLK assassination and things like that. But again, it was just used as like a, a slate clearing, right? Of like, okay, we've acknowledged that we've made some mistakes. And now we're just going to move on as a country, right? <laughs> nobody will be held accountable. Like nobody in the FBI, CIA, certainly in the Nixon administration is going to be held accountable. But look, you know, uh, we're admitting that we we did a no growth. And now we're just going to move past. Cool. It. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. It's, it's cool to see, you know, growth. And that's what that's what I'm here for. So I'm just taking them at their word. Yeah. And of course, they've never done any of these things since. So I think we can say it worked. Yeah. So, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Problem solved. Uh, as we know, presidential corruption ended on uh -huh. the day that uh, Nixon uh, stepped down as well as uh, the CIA and FBI hands clean ever since. Yeah, they're just um, doing like a United Way charity work now, basically. They're like <laughs> yeah. feeding people. Yeah. And so in a, in a sick way, I mean, these hearings kind of set up the reactionary turn of the late 70s and 80s in a weird way, right? By kind of clearing for upstanding liberals, right? This was an admission of guilt. And a clearing of the slate. And now we're ready to, to start over again with full trust and faith in our institutions, right? Perfect. <laughs> and no, no need to be concerned about them in any way. And it kind of yeah. set up uh, the next, you know, 40 years, obviously. But, uh, you know, an interesting thing. I mean, I, I think there's a lot you could dig into. There's a lot of uh, the conspiracy realm around these hearings is quite deep. Uh, a lot of holes you can jump into on that one. But... During Richard Nixon's life, one of his harshest critics was the journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Now, Hunter S. Thompson once told Nixon that uh, 
his opinion of him, that he didn't like him very much. And Nixon shared with Thompson that he didn't really like him very much either. Now, I feel like we'd be a little remiss in this conversation about Richard Nixon if we didn't include some excerpts from Hunter S. Thompson's eulogy for the man. Richard Nixon is gone now, and I am poorer for it. He was the real thing, a political monster straight out of Grendel and a very dangerous enemy. He could shake your hand and stab you in the back at the same time. He lied to his friends and betrayed the trust of his family. Not even Gerald Ford, the unhappy ex-president who pardoned Nixon and kept him out of prison, was immune to the evil fallout. Ford, who believes strongly in heaven and hell, has told more than one of his celebrity golf partners that, quote, I know I will go to hell because I pardoned Richard Nixon. Nixon was a Navy man, and he should have been buried at sea. Many of his friends were seagoing people, Bebby Rebozo, Robert Vesco, William F. Buckley Jr., and some of them wanted a full naval burial. These came in at least two styles, however, and Nixon's immediate family strongly opposed both of them. In the traditionalist style, the dead president's body would be wrapped and sewn loosely in canvas sailcloth and dumped off the stern of a frigate at least 100 miles off the coast and at least 1,000 miles south of San Diego so the corpse can never wash up on American soil in any recognizable form. The family opted for cremation until they were advised of the potentially onerous implications of a strictly private, unwitnessed burning of the body of the man who was, after all, the President of the United States. Awkward questions might be raised. Dark allusions to Hitler and Rasputin. People would be filing lawsuits to get their hands on the dental charts. Long court battles would be inevitable. Either way, an orgy of greed and duplicity was sure to follow any public hint that Nixon might somehow have faked his own death or been cryogenically transferred to fascist Chinese interests on the Central Asian mainland. If the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral, his casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empty into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help him screw his pants on every morning. Even his funeral was illegal. His body should have been burned in a trash bin. Let there be no mistake in the history books about that. Richard Nixon was an evil man. Evil in a way that only those who believe in the physical reality of the devil can understand it. He was utterly without ethics or morals or any bedrock sense of decency. Nobody trusted him, and honest historians will remember him mainly as a rat who kept scrambling to get back on the ship. It is fitting that Richard Nixon's final gesture to the American people was a clearly illegal series of 21 105mm howitzer blasts that shattered the peace of a residential neighborhood and permanently disturbed many children. Neighbors also complained about another unsanctioned burial in the yard at the old Nixon place, which was brazenly illegal. Quote, it makes the whole neighborhood look like a graveyard, said one, and it fucks up my children's sense of values. Many were incensed about the howitzers, but they knew there was nothing they could do about it, not with the current president sitting about 50 yards away and laughing at the roar of the cannons. It was Nixon's last war, and he won. Everybody's Just talking about the
Now, that gets us to, I, I brought this up just a second ago, but it gets us to something that's a little complicated that we talked about on the episode. I thought that maybe we should just go in a little more into some detail here or spell it a little better, which is uh, the end of Bretton Woods and the transition from essentially a gold-based dollar to the petrodollar. Now, yeah. we explained it in episode 23, I believe that was, uh, about neoliberalism. Uh, but I just thought that, like, maybe we'll just give a little more explanation here. Uh, Munya, you're our, uh, you're, you're our gold guy. You're a resident gold bug. Uh, you're always telling me we got to get back to metallic currencies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why do gold standards always fail? <laughs> why, why does it never work? <laughs> I want it to. Why does it not work? Well, we first need to take it back to, I think, the 12th century. And uh, when, you know. <laughs> do you remember that timeline we saw of the JFK assassination that yeah. began in like, <laughs> it was like 100 BC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 incredible stuff but but yeah you know gold standards have a exactly zero percent and all metallic standards have a exactly zero percent success rate no and yeah yeah the sort of gold bugs or whatever who always want to go back to it they you know they're always desperate to get to it because for them it means something about stability right yeah, right but there's literally been nothing less stable than metallic back currencies uh, no. on this planet. No, like abs- absolutely. Like there's a reason why they've always failed, right? And I think that a lot of gold bugs like point to the sense of, oh, well, you know, look at you, if you could just print money. Like what? What is a dollar really worth, right? This is just a piece of paper where gold is a real scarce metal, scarce resource, right? You can, uh, it's it's a soft precious metal right that you know there's Mm -hmm. only so much of it um so you know we can just use that as as currency right it doesn't degrade over time right so Mm -hmm. you know um which like i think on the surface like if you really don't like critically think about it like just kind of makes sense to people if you just hear those words right it's like oh Mm -hmm. yeah well sure you know (laughs) like uh but you know uh, the gold uh i mean dude taking it back to history i mean you know gold has suffered like many crises right like and not even like just within like modern um in our modern like monetary structure or you know even like modern imperial structure but i mean just even like over time gold can be really sensitive to because there's a fixed amount of gold always right um Mm. and it can't you can't really get that number up that much um you know, other than mining it, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, mining is kind of gone at this yeah. point. A lot of the gold has been extracted out of the ground. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, that's also you know. a new problem that we can discuss. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, there's actually, like, there's only so much gold in the ground, right? And, you know, you have to account for that with the actual um, inflationary and deflationary pressures that, you know, uh, happen, you know, with gold. And, um, you know, if they're both like tied, like that's like basically mm-hmm. what we would call, and I think David Harvey would say it's like a dual um, aspect of money in a lot of ways, right? So, um, you know, the actual value of gold can, you know, change really rapidly, right? But if you mm. like have a mar- a fixed price on gold and say that this is what it's, you know, worth, like one, mm. you know, let's say gold coin, let's just use it in simplicity, right? Like, you know, one gram is worth this specific amount. Well, that value 
can change really rapidly, right? And and yeah, yeah. and also then if you put that into markets, which then prices change rapidly, it's almost like really hard to uh, have valuation for anything really. Yeah, I mean, it, it creates a variety of problems. I mean, one is just the initial error and logic, right? That all gold bugs have, which is that gold has an intrinsic value. Yeah. Right. That there is some sort of ordained by God, I guess, value to an ounce of gold, right? You know, under the Bretton Woods system, it was uh, $35 per ounce of gold, right? And the thing is, the value of gold is set the same way that the value of everything in the world is set, which is by the labor embedded in the gold production itself, right? So in the sense that if we have a very difficult, laborious mining process for mining gold, gold will have one value. It might be more dear, right? If all of a sudden we invent a you know mining process that allows us to mine the gold very simply and easily and quickly and cheaply, all of a sudden you're going to find the value of gold is going to become less dear, right? It's going to have a different value to it. Yeah. Now, this was always understood. I mean, this is at the heart of alchemy, right? <laughs> Which is if we could just find some way to make gold out of other things, right, that are very cheap and easy to put together, then we'll have sneakily stolen some money. Not realizing, though, that if you to the alchemist, were you to turn all that lead into gold, you'd just be devout. You'd be creating, you know, de- uh, an inflationary pressure, right? The value of the gold would decrease, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and as more gold is getting, you know, mined out of the ground, especially for cheaper and cheaper ways because technology progresses, right? Like that value yeah. then decreases. And I think that, you know, having gold as a sense of a, you know, safety and security is is the same reason, I think, the same reasoning you give to any real like you know commodity on the market yeah, yeah. right like you yeah. know these are expensive for a reason right and they can yeah. get a lot cheaper for a lot of reasons too so to mark that as a stable uh currency which is something that requires labor to extract out of the ground mm-hmm. um and if you know we find ways to just start printing gold out of thin air using like you know chemistry like that value is not going to stay the same yeah. right there's yeah. <laughs> like the people in like the you know in the medieval era used it because it was extremely hard to get out of the ground and it was mm. really scarce. And but there was a time when all of the gold was basically just out of the ground in Europe. I mean, that's why, for a major reason, why, I mean, the new world by European colonists were discovered because they needed more gold. Everyone was fucking broke, right? Yeah. And so, you know, um, gold can, like, hold a specific value, but, like, you know, if Mansa Musa comes with his, like, you know, cannon of gold and just, like... There's case studies where he's actually just visited villages, right? This is like a the Mali, the leader of Mali, um, back in the day. Um, he come with like cases of gold and just like you know just spread it around, and like suddenly he would completely bankrupt cities, right? And you know the equivalent mm-hmm. of bankrupting cities by just providing so much gold in a specific yeah. area at a specific time, right? Like the the logic of gold buggery would be, oh, if there was so much gold there, then you know. Uh, everyone well, would just be much, rich. Everyone's yeah. that much richer, right? Because <laughs> right. It, it, the value stays stable. The value but it stays the same. Right? Well, no, I mean, it completely decimated everything, right? And so mm-hmm. um, the requirement of gold is that a ha- the fixed production cost has to be the same and has to be constant to extract out of the ground. And there can't be that much of it. 
right? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's not always true, right? I mean, yeah, in your example, I mean, the other famous example, right, would be with the discovery of the New World, Spain, you know, as you mentioned, flooding uh, Europe with silver and gold created price chaos yeah. across Europe. <laughs> it, like, <laughs> sunk everybody's currency. Literally, like, treasure. Know? They couldn't get the gold out of there fast enough. There are still, like, sunken <laughs> treasure ships in, in the Atlantic Ocean because they stacked so much gold on their fleets that, like, the, it's the gold, like, sunk the ships. Like, there's, like, shipwrecks because they were just being too greedy and too opportunistic with how much fucking gold they were extracting out of the New World, yeah. you know? And when you have these metallic-based currencies, and all of a sudden you drop all this gold and silver in Europe, it, yeah, it's going to create economic chaos across the continent, which it did, you know? Um, I mean, similarly, you know, Isaac Newton, you know, famous for, uh, you know, having an apple fall on his head, uh, true story. But, you know, <laughs> but Isaac Newton, his job actually was, he was the, the warden of the treasury in Britain, which meant that his job was effectively to weigh all. So back, you know, under old metallic currency. So you know, if you had a silver coin, the value of the coin was related to the weight of the coin itself. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so he would, you know, part of his job was weighing all the coins as they went through circulation to make sure people hadn't been shaving. Right. So people would shave silver off the coin. And then eventually you could either sell the silver shavings or mint your own coin. Right. You know, and so Isaac Newton's like, uh, was the hangman who hung like probably a couple hundred different people, right? For uh, <laughs> counterfeit, uh, counterfeiting for shaving, right? For shaving yeah. coins, right? Yeah. And all of this is to protect what is effectively a lie, which is that money has a fixed value, right? And, yep. and it gets us to, yeah, what you were talking about earlier, which is the problem with money itself and why you can't really tie gold to it is that inflation and deflation are both embedded in money, right? Simultaneously, yeah. right? Money is both the representation of labor that has been performed already and through systems of credit, labor that can be performed in the future or potential labor in the future, right? And so it has inflationary and deflationary things just built into it into the whole it's not stable right you know uh yeah yeah harvey you know he has this whole thing about how it's both objective and immaterial right yeah and right it, you know asking how much is this you know this dollar worth right is the wrong question it's like asking how much gravity is in a stone right in that the value of money is about a relationship between a lot of different things as opposed to something inherent in the object you have in your hand and, but the thing is, that's complicated, right? Whereas gold has a God-derived value, and I just got to <laughs> hold on to it, bury enough of it in my yeah. yard. It's <laughs> easy to wrap your head around and easy to become psychotic over. But in the time we're talking about in the 60s and 70s, I mean, you know, uh, all these things are impacting, right? So the spending on the Vietnam War is creating inflationary pressure on money, right? That then is creating a problem with your money being tied to a fixed gold standard, right? Because <laughs> the money has broken away from the value of gold, right? And if somebody was smart enough and had the balls enough to call you on that, like the British and the French did, they could just show up with a whole bunch of bills, you know, a billion dollars in U.S. bills and say, we'd like the gold, please. Yeah, right? give me the gold. <laughs> show know? me the gold. And even if they wanted the dollars back, right, you know, on 
individual gold markets, they're not selling $35 an ounce. They're selling, you know, at, at different prices, right? So they would come in and they could just buy, you know, use the gold and get more cash back in return, right? You know, simple two-step process, double their, you know, investment, One right? One weird trick. One right. weird trick, right? <laughs> at the same time, I mean, part of the thing, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about South Africa, but one of the concerns the U.S. has in South Africa is that South Africa has a lot of gold mines and they're worried that if the Soviet Union gets influence in South Africa, the Soviet Union will just flood the world with gold and fuck the Bretton Woods standard. <laughs> <all> <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are real concerns, right? For people, you know, uh, the gold bugs, right? Those are just the cranks at the bottom of the, you know, ladder or whatever. But for the people at the top who understand how this shit works, I mean, this is the stuff they actually have to worry about, right? And why Nixon ultimately was like, fuck it, just get us off of this. You know, like, this is ridiculous. Let's just get off the ride. And I mean, probably the worst thing for the gold bugs is that the world, the you know, the heavens didn't fall down to the earth uh, when they just floated the dollar. Right. But it does bring an interesting question up for modern finance, which is how do we know what currencies are worth relative to one another? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a lot of answers to that question. Uh Maybe all of which are right or none of which are right, right? But the thing is, you don't really know. These are just agreed upon prices between things. But the U.S. still needed people to collect dollars, right? We still need the dollar to be the baseline currency for world capitalism. And that's why petrodollars came into being. That's why oil became so important. And oil is a more sophisticated thing than gold to base your currency on right now. We've quietly unofficially based it on oil. Right. But the thing is, people have to use oil. People could get tired of gold. Right. And just yeah, say, I don't care. I, don't, I, don't right? I mean, yeah, at the end care? of the we're day, you can't at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah or right. Whatever, right. Like, oh, oh, where silver, where platinum. Right. Like where titanium, whatever. Right. Like it's like yeah. that's like a luck. Gold ultimately is a luxury like material. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. oil is something that you can actually translate to power and convert yeah. into energy. Right. That's that's very different. <laughs> and luckily, the United States has spent the preceding decades ensuring that every country in the capitalist world, at least, was uh, hopelessly and slavishly connected to oil. Right. Yeah. They had to have oil for their society to function and then turned around and said, yeah, uh, Bretton Woods is over. No more thirty five dollars an ounce of gold. Uh, but if you want to buy oil, you're still going to have to have dollars. Yeah, yeah. And the value of that was that every country in the world has to keep a certain amount of U.S. dollars on hand all the time, right? All the time. And in order for the U.S., if they wanted to, uh, that allows like basically modern monetary theory in general to work, right? In a very yeah. real way. It's because, why MMT can work for the U.S. and probably yes, not for anybody else. <laughs> for anybody else. is because they have the oil dollar. It's literally, you can you can just, if you were in control of the Treasury, right? Or like the Fed, um, or if you're just, you know, in, a head of state, you can just print money essentially, right? And not even just in a physical sense, but literally just like, you know, for if you're controlling the petrodollar and the petrodollar is like pegged to your currency, um, and it requires your currency to purchase oil. Um, you can literally just create billions of dollars out of thin air, and it would not impact, uh, you know, your economy in any real significant way, mm-hmm. right? It's it's it, it's it is free real estate. I mean, yeah. truly. 
Well, even if you have inflationary pressure on your currency, all that does is force other countries to soak up more of your currency. Right? They didn't so, need more of them. So they'll just if, have if to the soak euro, up your debt. <laughs> right. If the euro or lira, right, or, you know, uh, any other currency was, then like the U.S. would actually have to exchange their dollars for that other currency at a market exchange rate. They cannot yeah. just like print out more dollars and do that because that would actually affect the exchange rate of those. Right. Like it. it, it in a real way, that is why the U.S. is the hegemonic empire of today, mm. right? That's why yeah. they like control global capitalism is the petrodollar. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's also why the U.S. can't just give up its empire, right? So, you know, the ability to control the international currency, right, to force other countries to essentially buy your debt from you and all this other kind of stuff. That's all enforced by the U.S. controlling the sale of oil, right, and the movement of particular critical goods across the planet. And, you know, if the U.S. gave up on that and allowed, say, Iran to choose, <laughs> you know, what currency oil was sold, to allow the Saudis, right, the Venezuelans, right, to choose how they want to move this critical product, uh, well, they probably wouldn't pick dollars, right? So that would, that would be a uh, problem. Um, and so this is part of the commitment that the U.S. has to empire as well. Uh, these things are all entangled, right? They can't just be dropped. Um, now, that's, you know, if you care about American capitalism staying, you know, <laughs> sustaining itself. Uh, if you don't, fuck it. Yeah. Let the yeah, empire fall. Let the, let the international currency market fall. It's all okay. Well, let's just stay on the question of uh, economics and maybe a little bit of Marxism. We had a question in the chat. This is a little while back. I'm sorry. I can't remember who posted, but asking us about uh, base and superstructure, something we brought up early in the series. And I just wanted to read. So the, the concept of base and superstructure, it's sort of early elucidation comes from a footnote in Capital Volume 1. So if you get a chapter one footnote 34... Uh, Marx lays out this concept of base and superstructure that Marxists have been arguing about ever since. And so I'll just read it to you real quick, and then we can talk about maybe why some people are mad at it and uh, why ultimately it's fine. All right. I seize this opportunity of shortly answering an objection taken by a German newspaper in America to my work, The Critique of Political Economy. In the estimation of that paper, my view that each special mode of production and the social relations corresponding to it, in short, that the economic structure of society is the real basis on which the juridical and political superstructure is raised and to which the definite social forms of thought correspond, that the mode of production determines the character of the social, political, and intellectual life generally. All right. So. It's a very long footnote that's almost like a page long <laughs> on its own, but that's the the crux of it. Uh, 
Marxists have been arguing about this uh, since time immemorial of whether this is a real thing that people should take seriously or whether Marx really meant for people to take it seriously. Um, my sort of take on it is if you read Marx's work, that is the formulation that is in his work, embedded into his work, right? There's an yeah. economic base and it builds a superstructure of, you know, again, yeah, the political, juridical, and intellectual forms around it to protect it, feed it, etc. Uh, so yeah, I think Marx took that pretty seriously. Um, and I think that we've tried to take it, you know, tried to use this framework uh, while going through U.S. history. Um, Munya, do you have any thoughts on this? I just, I just wanted to maybe be a yeah. little clear on where that all that all that stuff came from and kind of what it all means. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's important to cite the source of that, like with the footnotes, and it just goes to show like what a what a dense and impactful uh, book Capital is, like uh, especially Capital Volume One. Um, and I, I think you know, it's essentially you're boiling it down to a. Society is created around the economic base of production, right? And, yeah. you know, all of those things that I think where we're subsumed in in modern times, right? Like today, uh, all the things that I think we talk about, um, you know, whether that's the, uh, you know, the politics, right? Even like the elected officials, the parties, right? Um, mm. the, the ideas of race, the class system that comes up. Those are all interconnected. That's basically saying those are all interconnected and built on top of a economic system to reinforce it, to support it, um, et cetera, and are outcomes of it too, right? So even things that might not be um, supporting that economic system are at least subjects and outcomes of that economic system that it ultimately produces, um, which I think is a, I, I think is incorrect to separate those two. And I think mm -hmm. if we think about what drives uh, history forward, right? In, in material analysis, um, it's a very fundamental uh, Marxist concept, and really just a political economy concept in general, right? To um, think of societies developed around an economic mode of production and economic system, um, then everything can be built around that, and we live in that superstructure. We are that superstructure, mm -hmm. right? Which is a little bit hard to like understand because it's such a mm -hmm. big thing. Um, but yeah. you know, just because it's so big doesn't mean that it overshadows or is separate from the economic modes that we're living in, right? Yeah, you're you're a fish trying to understand the water, right? And, exactly. Uh, you know, and that takes you know a, a little more work than would you know somebody from the outside looking at it would maybe think would be needed right an alien looking at our society would probably have a much easier time understanding it <laughs> than yeah, i mean think about even like inside. our yeah. like the media that we consume like what we're even taught like in in class right the mm. the news that is like brought up the movies we watch the music we listen to mm -hmm. the, you know these are all um you know connected with our economic system right yeah. um whether they uh, are supposedly or the message can differ, of course, but they're all in context to what we're living in. Yeah, and let's, you know, and to give an example, um, 
I remember this was a, a big deal for American uh, capitalists who were going to raid the Soviet Union and looking to like buy factories and stuff. And they would always complain like the workers there, uh, there's too many workers and they work too few hours. Right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like they have four people on a line doing something when I could bring in a machine that just gets it down to one person. Right. And they're just like these, these Soviets, they're so stupid. They're so dumb. Why did they arrange things this way? Right. And again, this is a base and superstructure question. These are two people coming from two very different societies that because of, you know, how their economy is organized, have fundamentally different views on, you know, how to arrange things. Right. The Soviet Union full employment was important. Right. And so, yeah, it didn't make sense to just, you know, minimize your workforce at all possible costs. Right. It didn't make sense to work individual workers as long as humanly possible. Right. It was like, no, we'll give them less hours. We'll have more people doing the task. More people doing it for less hours. Right. It's yeah. And not about like squeezing like surplus out of like the one person the most amount of times no matter if they die or whatever right like yeah Yeah, exactly and these are two societies that are relatively close in sort of historical cultural terms or whatever it's what makes understanding say how people think during feudalism so difficult right is that during feudalism those were literally different people (laughs) like they're like (laughs) almost (laughs) alien to us they lived in a social order so different from ours that just their process of thinking is hard for us to work from and imagine right i mean try to conceptualize the system of feudalism i tried to do this recently and it was like <laughs> very very hard for me to even as a subject of capitalism to wrap my mind around like the fundamental idea of feudalism right in the system of feudalism <laughs> it, it blew my mind <laughs> yeah many people spend most of their lives going you know really elucidating the ins and outs of the feudal order feudal morality and things like that you know, really working hard, putting in the effort to try and make this make sense. People under feudalism just did it, right? This was just the life they lived, yeah, right? right. You know, they weren't they weren't spending their lives in graduate school learning this stuff, right? <laughs> but again, that's because we're essentially understanding a different way of life, right? right. And I think Which this is, is just base. Yeah, and this is a cautionary tale too for people who try and flatten history entirely and be like, oh, uh, this is going to happen because in ancient Rome, it's like, well, no, throw that shit right out the fucking window. Ancient Rome was a different planet than us. All right. Like ancient Rome know. declined and, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, in America's declining. So yeah. uh, it took them 300 years to decline. So uh, I'd say that, uh, you know, the time is up we, for America we, for sure. Took, or, you know, it took Rome 40 years to cl- decline and fully collapse. So that's how long it'll take the United States. It's like yeah. different time, different like, place, dude, different. No, system. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. like so, that doesn't. <laughs> which is not to say you can't learn anything from history, but it's yeah, one no, of those no, things. I mean, like, keep yeah, your exactly. On, keep your yeah, on your shoulders, come on. Like, right? <laughs> uh, the whole premise of this is that the uh, empire of the U.S. is in decline. We're not saying it's not. Yeah. Um, and we're, you know, we can like draw certain parallels to ancient rome but to try to like make a one-to-one comparison of just empires rising and falling right like that's mm-hmm. um that misses the broader base that and mm-hmm. like you know social and economic base that they were living in right yeah like- and understand the, e- the social and economic base will allow you to understand the critical details that give you the actual story in the end right yeah all right well 
we'll move on to another concept that's definitely not controversial either that we used a lot in our episode on neoliberalism, which is the idea of the falling rate of profit, right? Yes. And so the idea of the falling rate of profit is actually, you know, that's old political economy dating back to like the 18th century. Yeah, Um, old school. Marx, he elucidated it in the way that mostly gets used today, right? So most of these older political economic concepts were almost always borrowing from Marx. Um, And... Marx's idea of the falling rate of profit is that just over time, profit rates, which is different than the mass of profits, but the ratio of profit to expense tends to decline, right? And he, to give the sort of easiest possible uh, explanation for this, is Marx broke down the elements of production, right? You know, that go into profit into two things. There was variable capital and constant capital, right? Variable capital includes things that where prices are set politically like wages, all right? So I could pay a worker $15 an hour one day, and the next day I could pay him $10 an hour if I squeeze them fucking hard enough, right? You know, so that would be variable capital, right? Something where you yep. can squeeze blood from the stone, right? Constant capital is things where prices are fixed, like equipment, power supply, all that kind of stuff, right? So a machine would be constant capital. Its price is just the price. You pay it. You, you know, you assume that that price is being amortized over a certain time period in a fixed, you know, way. Yeah, right? you pay that up front. And what Marx was saying is that part of the technological development and the drive that is created uh, under capitalism to constantly refine the techniques of production, part of that is the constant capital portion of the equation grows at a rate much faster than the variable capital portion of the equation and that causes your profit rate to decline, right? The place where you can very easily seize profits is from your workers by cutting their yep. wages, right? It's not from it's equipment and things like that. Yeah. yeah, you can shove it down at no cost to you, at no cost to production, etc. It's just pure money to be taken, right? And as that sort of technological aspect increases, the profit rates tend to decline over time for companies, right? Now... A lot of people get hung up on this and they say, no, not in every single instance. Let me now go Hmm. cherry pick some example. Right. And this is where the term tends to, I feel like gets lost. Right. (laughs) Which is Marx argues. Yes. Every capitalist is in a way kind of moving inexorably that direction. Right. Uh, One uh, example of this is sweatshop industries. Right. So garment used to all be done by hand. Right. Very labor intensive. If you want to make more money in garment, what you would do is you would either get the workers to speed up through hitting them, Mm -hmm. punishing them in some way. Right. Be more punitive. Right. Or you would push their wages down or do both simultaneously, which is usually the answer they go with. Right. But. As time has gone by, even in uh, sweatshops, which are known for their sort of exploitation of human labor, even in sweatshops, they become increasingly mechanized, right? So even in sweatshops, the equation that Marx is showing is sort of playing itself out, and it's causing the sweatshops themselves to more intensely exploit the workers within the sweatshop itself, right? To try and claw back some of the revenue that they've lost through the process of mechanization and things like that. Um, this is why there tends to be a relationship between mechanization and declining wages, <laughs> things like yeah. that, right? Now, Marx argues, so that's his sort of point about the decline rate of profit, all right? Now, Marx argues there's ways to mitigate that on capital's part, right, to sort of stave it off. 
And I just thought I'd list them. These are just his. So this is all in capital volume three. Uh, but I'll just read the headers that he has for the ways to mitigate it. And just, Munia, let me know if these ring true. Okay, sure. Uh, more intense exploitation of labor. <laughs> right. Well, we just covered that. <laughs> yeah, make them work harder. All yeah. right. Uh, by the way, we talked about this in the slave South, right? That this was a major way of increasing cotton production was to just beat the slaves more, you know? Yeah, and it worked. And, and it worked. Yeah, it was actually more productive than mechanization for a long time. Um, reduction of wages below their current value. So those are those are the two favorites right there. Make them work harder, <laughs> pay them less. Pay them less. <laughs> uh, technology and other elements of constant capital becoming cheaper. So you can obviously yep. just hope that, that those technological elements get cheaper over time, which sometimes they do, but usually by then you're already moving on to the next piece of technology, yeah. which isn't I mean, that's cheaper. That's the thing about technology, right, is that uh, it's not it's not like you just go from level three to level four and then just like exist in level four, right? There's yeah, always yeah. going to be a development of level five and level six technology and level seven, mm-hmm. right? Like the, you have to really um, constantly, um, you know, invest and adopt new methods or else you'll be behind yeah. in that way so yeah. i mean like let and i'm using levels as just like to simplify this right so mm-hmm. if you're like in like you know level four yeah sure over time level four will get cheaper but that's because like level five is coming up as well right and mm-hmm. so you know technology um with even like with moore's law for instance right which is basically like you can fit like double the amount of um you know processing power in the same chip right like and that will double at the that will double for the same cost, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you will, if it costs like $50 to have, you know, um, like 64 processors uh, next year, it would cost $60 to have 128 processors, right? Like that, yeah. that's a 50% like reduction in price. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, those things do happen, but you know, again, um, if you just stay at that 64 processor, then now you're already at 512 and you mm-hmm. can't and you haven't invested in that right so it's a constant investment that you have to make yeah yeah and i mean you know it's it's part of the panic too by the way on uh the fear that processing speed might actually start slowing down like that we might have hit a limit on you yes know, uh, right. building processors microprocessors and things like that uh but yeah yeah in the machining world uh it comes across as you know price of a part is usually set by machine time right you can there's a lot of other aspects here but it basically boils down to the machine time it takes to cut something Mm -hmm. so there's obviously an incentive to buy a machine that can cut something a little faster than your competitors right because then you know the sort of price of it which is set by the group of people who are making this product right so all manufacturers together right what's you know their sort of aggregate time to create a part right that sort of sets the price for the part. And if I can get my cutting time slightly below the aggregate, that's all extra money. That's all that's gravy for me. I'm taking that as the boss, right? The problem being once one person does that, all the others see it, they buy that same machine. And now what has happened is the price goes down to match the new aggregate labor time to make the part. And you're right back where you fucking started, right? Yet you still have to pay the bank for the loan to buy the equipment, right? You know, yep. all that kind of stuff, right? So it ends up being this sort of, you know, chasing your tail kind of thing, right? A, a fight to the bottom. Um, all right. So 
Back to our uh, ways to get out of this uh, new surplus population being moved into service industry work. <laughs> that one. So I had read the chapter <laughs> on the rate of uh, profit declining many years ago, back in like 2008. I think it's when I last really went through it. And uh, I had not remembered this part of it, but that really made me laugh. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Marx 1870 was like, oh, well, as industry shoves people out of work, you can shove them into uh, service industry work. That's not like productive in the same sense. Right. But yeah. it's like, you know, it's ways to like try and uh, skim money and move money around and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I just thought that was pretty funny, which is our whole economy now. Right. Yeah. In yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah in the United States. Right. Uh, foreign trade. Obviously, you could try and get one over on a neighbor. <laughs> Right, you know, uh, seize production advantages that you can't seize domestically, but you can seize uh, in foreign trade. Right, uh, the West did that for a long time, selling stuff in the third world and things like that. You know, uh, America's uh, America essentially in the 1990s destroyed agriculture, the whole agricultural sector of Mexico by flooding Mexico with cheap uh, American agricultural products. Right. So we're seizing a production advantage that we didn't have domestically uh, by essentially exploiting a foreign market. Uh, the other way you could do it is you can increase uh, you can have an increase in share capital. And it's very funny. So for people who don't know, Marx died in the process of writing uh, his later volumes of capital. There's capital supposed to be like one. five or six volumes of capital. You know, <laughs> yeah, like it wasn't to supposed to just them. end at three. <laughs> <laughs> so one is the only one that he actually finished. Right. You know, edited, finished, etc. Right. So everything else are just notes that were put together. And he has a slightly tantalizing thing about share capital where he's like, Look, uh, instead of invest investing in production, companies can start investing in things like, uh, you know, uh, essentially the stock market, right? Yeah, and they can, you know, uh, recoup their profits that they're losing from the falling rate of profit via sort of financial chicanery. And he's like, he's basically like, watch this space. More on this topic <laughs> later. That's like, oh, would have loved to see that get written out. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> it's it's purposely the shortest section and he's like i'm not going to talk a lot about this guys i got a lot to this say is coming in volume and five I yeah and i don't want you, i don't want to i don't want to blow it all now so let me <laughs> let me just let me just hit you with a little taste and then i'll come uh, back to, yeah uh maybe the world's most unhealthy man should have uh been a, <laughs> a little more on top of it <laughs> our curse our curse living in this world you know the <laughs> most unhealthy like you know porous like um <laughs> brilliant scholar you know yeah, yeah really. i mean it's it it always funny every once in a while you get the the twitter galaxy brain take of uh you know marx was you know he's pmc or whatever and it's like <laughs> i wish which, which i really the, wish yeah try and write him off as like he's just a rich guy you don't have to yeah. but like uh marx's life is another person whose life is very funny like it's it's worth looking into you don't want to live is, it i promise you no it's full not, of carbuncles it, and disease and poverty <laughs> and look like i wish that his like he was pmc like you can make that case about basically any other like you know <laughs> left as like ac academic right and like yeah. you know then after marx marxist academic you know like they're you know they had the free time to write it because they you know they could have you know afford to i'm talking about in you know europe obviously but like you yeah know, um you know, like L lenin was like not like you know living the life that 
Marx was necessarily, right? Like Lenin could have been a yeah, part yeah. of, you know, just like the the basically the PMC like equivalent of Russia if you wanted yeah. to, you know, like. <laughs> well, I, th- I think people kind of misunderstand what where these people are. Like, so Marx's parents were, of course, uh, you know, worked in the sort of German bureaucracy, right? You yeah, know, this is what you could yeah. do to be like, this is how you got in the middle class right at the time. And uh, it's why also like Marx's family had abandoned their sort of Jewishness or whatever as well, because that was required uh, yeah. to be in uh, the Kaiser's uh, service. Right. <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, Marx himself, you know, uh, he could have just not rocked any boats and probably lived like, I mean, an easy for the 19th century, yeah, like life, a uh, middle class ish, like yeah, 19th century, yeah, life, like a like little like, shitty whatever. house, in, yeah. you know, whatever fucking town in Germany or whatever, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But he didn't want to live that life. He wanted to be based. Yeah. And the problem with being based <laughs> he is He wanted that... to argue with the young Hegelians. <laughs> exactly. And the problem he with that is... wanted to own them. You very quickly become unemployable. Yeah. And, uh, and this is in an era where that's a really bad spot to be in. Yeah. Um, uh, Marx got to the point where he wasn't just unemployable. He also couldn't live in most of the countries in Europe. He, got, he, he was basically just on like trains yeah. for like half of his yeah. life, just getting like shipped to different countries countries because they didn't want him <laughs> yeah like uh it's it's always the funny one you get with lenin too we're like oh lenin he was just always grasping for power that's how he yeah. that's why he became a communist it's like that is not the road you would take in czarist russia if you wanted to uh if you if you just wanted power right he would have you know as a lawyer he just would try to get in the bureaucracy and yeah, work right. his way and up work your way up there that's the which, easiest way to be yeah which especially czarist russia it's a very stupid bureaucracy like yeah, you could probably right. get pretty far the man was not a dumb guy like he probably could have been pretty successful uh doing what lenin did which is being based again is more likely to get you killed in almost every situation either from starvation or politically right yeah yeah uh you know one of those two yeah so it's like you know again found himself completely unemployable and not allowed to live in a lot of countries yeah yeah but Anyways, <laughs> speaking of which, speaking of Marx's uh, carbuncles, uh, we had a user question about healthcare. care. Uh, this is from Vandy, who asked, uh, when did the American health, I'm just summing up here, when did the American healthcare system go to shit? And was it the 1970s? And uh, Vandy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like a lot of things, <laughs> it was. So... Yeah, uh, hilariously, uh, Roosevelt, right before he died, had uh, started pushing the idea of creating a national insurance or national health system type setup, right? Essentially moving towards some sort of universal health care system. Um, he, of course, died then. Um, immediately upon bringing it up, was murdered by the fucking health care. No, uh, but died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Immediately afterwards, even Truman was like, hey, this is a, a a new deal. Everybody wanted a piece of a New Deal legacy, right? Everyone wanted to, to head their own sort of New Deal program because people love that shit. Like they're all, everyone's psyched about it, right? So Truman was like, healthcare, 
that's the one I'll put my name on. That won't make anybody mad. Uh, there's no like entrenched forces to get angry at me and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, hey, who doesn't here, like healthcare? Huh? Yeah, here we can put in the Trump voice. Wrong, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, alerted to this possibility, the American Medical Association immediately began uh, circling the wagons to defeat any concept of universal health care in America uh, by calling it communist, as you would do in the 1950s. But while they were busy out there red baiting this thing to death, uh, something darker was lurking. And that was libertarian economists of the 1940s and 50s. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> libertarian economists figured out that the real problem with healthcare in America is that Americans have too much of it. Hate it when that happens, dude. <laughs> and so they were saying the real crisis is that Americans don't pay enough for their health care. So they don't know its true value. And because of that, <laughs> yeah. they use too much of it. By the 1970s, so universal health care was still on the table going into the late 60s. Ted Kennedy, I think in 68 or 69, had even you put up forward a bill to create a essentially national health service, right? Nixon felt that, man, this might be a fait accompli. I have to save the private insurance industry and basically start putting together his own version of Obamacare, which it would keep all of health care totally privatized, but people would be forced to buy <laughs> into it. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but by the by the 1970s, just like on every other thing, the libertarian economists had begun to win the argument that the actual problem is people have too much health care in America. And uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, this became the talking point that everybody went through of, oh, look, there's a uh, there's a moral hazard with health care, which is if people can just access it, they'll take too much and it'll create cost problems, cost overrun problems. This has been the central issue of all healthcare discussions at the political level in America since the 1970s. It has nothing to do with, man, we have millions of people who are uninsured who all die early or America has the worst health outcomes on the planet. Nobody has had that. Nobody talks about that at the actual level of policymaking. Bernie Sanders has been the only person to have talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and notice what happened to him, right? Notice how <laughs> close they let him get to anything, right? Um, so yeah, so the issue came down to moral hazards. How do we fix the moral hazard of Americans using too much health care the answer was uh, we should make them pay more for their health care. So higher out-of-pocket costs, higher premiums, all that kind of stuff, right? And that has been the trend that was baked into Obamacare. Uh, it, of course, led to the situation of how do we uh, let the insurance companies still make huge profits? Of course, they're paying less while taking more from you, so that helped. But uh, then they decided, well, let's just create a mandate and just force people to buy private insurance. But uh, yeah, so... Uh, when did the American healthcare system go to shit? Uh, the 1970s. Uh, why did it go to shit? Libertarian economics and the belief that uh, people needed to get a lot less for a lot more money. <laughs> that, that was at the core of all you know neoliberal thought, right? Yeah. Standing on the 
So Vietnam. All right, let's 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 get into the let's, let's get into go. the weeds here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were some interesting questions that we we talked about with Jerry Limke a little bit. I think I just wanted to hit home a little bit, which is like who made up the anti-war movement? And I think a lot of uh, people have this imagination that it's a bunch of kids listening to uh, that Rolling Stones song that Scorsese uses in all his movies. Uh, you know, <laughs> just uh, doing, you know, yelling flower power and, uh, you know, dressed in like a Technicolor, you know, outfits. Um, so can we listen to Bob Dylan? Yeah, yeah. So can we listen to Bob Dylan? Uh, sad to say, that is not the case. Um, the anti-war movement was actually started by veterans of the Korean War, was the initial base of it. Uh, and it included a lot of uh, older people. And stuff like that. If you look at actual anti-war uh, marches and stuff from the time, you'll see uh, lots of old ladies, old gentlemen, old vets, right, in the anti-war movement. Uh, most of that other shit is just stuff you saw in a movie. Um, now, the question was, was the working class pro-war, which is always a question that comes up. And we actually know from polling data, the answer to that question is no. If you had a college degree, you're much more likely to be pro-war for longer. Uh, people with high school uh, degrees only or less were always the most virulently anti-war portion of the country. And now here's my favorite question. Were the hippies leftists? Munya, were the hippies leftists? Well, you know, half of my family like were hippies. You know, like my mom grew up <laughs> in you, you Northern California. Right well, my mom grew up in Northern California yeah. on a commune, um, and uh, you know, I it, I think I think this question is complicated. Weirdly, uh, for some reason, this discourse has come up on Twitter not to be like Twitter pilled, but like that mm-hmm. people have been kind of having discourse around like where the hippies yeah, left us or not recently, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it really like boggled my mind seeing these takes because, you know, this is like something that I kind of, you know, at least grew up with in, in a remnant sense. I obviously did not grow up in, you know, the, the counterculture mm-hmm. era of the seventies. Right. But, um, you know, I think the, the, the question is, is, and the answer to this question is it really depends. Um, yeah. you know, it's, I don't, I don't think that there's like a singular answer that a lot of uh, people were trying to make it out to be saying yes or no. Right. I mean, like this is mm-hmm. a broader reaction, I think, to um, not reactionary movement, but it was a reaction to, um, you know, a lot of social issues that were happening at the time. Sure. Right. And that it was born out of the civil rights movement. It was born out of the anti-war movement. And a lot of people got attracted to the counterculture movement, which, you know, formed like the, uh, archetype of a hippie right in a broad sense um but you know it was essentially an idea that i think people you know in northern california and around the country kind of put into practice which was to try to while like you know like uh, nixon was president while there were all these kind of awful things happening was to create a different way of living and try to actually live that out um, were were they principled Marxists? N- no, not all of them were. Of course not, right? Like this is, it was it was kind of like bigger than that. It, um, a lot of people who were uh, intellectual um, did join this movement. Um, some of it was goofy, and some of it was very uh, was very principled, and what you know resulted in them putting things into practice right they actually did like choose to reject a lot of status quo norms that i think their parents were doing right um there was a actual involvement in the anti-war uh movement now what were they the prime figures of it that's now i mean up for 
debate. I would say that they weren't, but I think that they certainly, um, you know, nominally were. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that like, oh, were they leftists or not? I think that kind of misses the point of what hippies mm. in general in the U.S. were and how they came to be, right? They were living yeah. in a very tumultuous, you know, period. And, you know, people who were usually like within um, academia, people who were like, you know, highly educated and, you know, just people um, around them, usually younger people, like sought to kind of create a new way of life. And my, uh, you know, mom was a child of that. My grandparents, mm. you know, came up during that time and still do, you know, live there. Now, um, have the, have my grandparents seen their peers turn kind of like uh, not <laughs> like their hippie selves in the 60s and 70s and kind of like turned like weirdly conservative? Yeah, some of them have, yeah. right? And it, it, yeah. it's very, it's very happens, weird. I mean, these uh, are the true leftists as well, I got to say. <laughs> yeah. that, that's always my favorite. It's like, oh, when they got older, they turned whatever. And it's like, yeah, people change over time. I hate to tell you yeah. this. Yeah, people do change, right? Yeah. Um, you know, not yeah. all of them do. I mean, I would yeah. say that my grandparents sure. did not. But like, you know, it was, it was uh, created out of conditions, right? It wasn't mm. a... It wasn't a singular political movement. It wasn't necessarily um, a uh, movement based on the offensive. It was reacting to things that were happening at the time, right? And so yeah. I think people give hippies, especially in popular cultures, and they were hated in popular culture. I mean, truly, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. they were the boogeyman that you would say that, you know, Antifa, trans people, et cetera, were like in, in mm-hmm. the 70s, right? Like they, they were the conservative boogeyman at that time right and so yeah, i think yeah, you hear was... a lot of negative ideas and negative myths about them but in reality i think it's a lot more uh, complex and a little more even positive i think than people give credit for it now was there goofy shit of course right but yeah. like you know that's yeah, also um, america like it's yeah, america right like <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh the the I, I think it's harder maybe for younger people to understand because there's no similar mass cultural event anymore like that like yeah. a like mass <laughs> cultural thing like that anymore yeah i mean you know i i have special powers to understand this because i've renounced all music uh <laughs> as uh, as haram but uh, <laughs> but this question always reminds me of the like is punk rock leftist conversation yeah. and the problem yeah. is you've, you've already begun from the wrong position right Punk rock is a set of aesthetics, right? And mm-hmm. the thing is, the hippie movement was a set of aesthetics. Now, built within it, there were certainly some currents and things like that that might appeal to people on the left or might drive drive people left or whatever, right? But it's, in effect, aesthetics, right? And somebody could be a hippie and, uh, you know, love Nixon or whatever. Not, probably not Nixon, but somebody <laughs> could be a hippie, right? And have conservative ideas, too. Right. They can hold those ideas simultaneously. Americans are capable of keeping a lot of dumb, contradictory ideas in their head at once. Now, as far as the explicitly hyper political part, I mean, the within hippieism itself at the time, there was an acknowledgement that there's sort of a split between people who are aesthetic hippies and people who are like political hippies. Right. Everything from like uh, Abby Hoffman's group, the yippies. Right. You're like, we're not hippies we're yippies because we're like political. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um. You know, there, there's all those weird little like splits and things in there. But like I said, it's best to just think about it like a larger aesthetic youth movement uh, that is really 
some people are just honestly some people are just there to get laid guys it's you know like that's what happens you know absolutely Um, some people really are just there to smoke weed like they don't really care about much else right it's definitely a case you know yeah yeah. i mean Uh, yeah the vibe chasers you know like yeah yeah. there's certainly people like that all around i mean go to your local dsa meeting you'll find you'll find people in there for the vibes as well and this is like like i said it's like go to like a punk rock concert and uh, survey everybody's political beliefs of the punk rock concert. I think you'll find it's not going to be too uniform, If you right? put it on a scatter chart, yeah. like you'll see yeah. dots around the entire axis, right? Try to yeah. draw a correlation line. It will be kind of hard to do that, right? Like, I mean, yeah, the punk rock scene is actually a really great example, Brian, yeah. because, I mean, like, um, it, it, it really, do, it, it, it is a style and aesthetic um, evokes a certain emotion and evokes countercultural attitudes, right? And I think people mm-hmm. associate countercultural attitudes and conflate that with leftism, right? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, it might attract people who are on the left, or maybe you know, uh, mm-hmm. like slight people to that end. But you know, it, just to be anti-establishment or countercultural does not necessarily imply a you know a firm political ideology. It attracts people from all over. Right? Yeah, yeah, from all sides, right? Um, okay, so uh, now that we've squashed that internet beef right there, let's go. I just want to talk a little bit about the the POW issue, uh, you know, how it was created, how it was used, right? We talked a little bit of this with Jerry Limke, which everybody, if you haven't listened, should go back and listen to that interview immediately. Um, Esteemed by the monthly review. Yeah. Uh, Moody, are you familiar with the POW flag, the like black flag with the guy? So in the let me tell you, the... I was in D.C. last week. And um, <laughs> you saw it a lot, was... I'm sure. <laughs> So not only did I see it a lot, but it was on the White House, Brian. Yep. Oh, it yeah. was it was on it was the American flag and the and the missing POW flag. That was yep. on the White House. That was um around every single monument. That was at I think I was even at the Capitol. I mean, everywhere I went, it was two flags. It was the American flag mm-hmm. and the missing POW black flag. And I was like looking at it, I was like, what is that flag? And I'm like, oh my God, this is mm-hmm. this is the flag we were just talking about. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so basically, um, that all that's just made up, right? That's just step one, all made up, but hilariously made up by the Nixon administration to prolong the Vietnam War. Now, in previous wars, missing action had a very particular meaning, which was somebody was presumed dead. We just didn't have the corpse, right? Yeah. So, you know, a plane gets shot down, you see it go and hit the ground, right? You don't hear anything about it afterwards you just presume the person has died right um that kind of stuff nixon changed the meaning of that and basically was like no we're still on the hunt like we assume <laughs> that they are alive somewhere alive. in vietnam and yeah. captured. now <laughs> yeah. the thing that's fucked up about this that you have to understand is nixon knows this is a lie Everybody in his administration knows this is a lie. Uh, They literally go into the military's own sort of record keeping and move stuff over from the presumed dead columns over to the presumed alive and looking for columns, right? So like moving people out of the dead column into the living column, right? They're resurrecting the dead, right? And this is a little fucked up because they're literally telling the families of these people that this is the case. Like, right? no, like, yeah, they're still alive. Yeah. Like, we're we're, yeah. we're looking for them. Don't your son yeah. who disappeared <laughs> in '65. We think he's still alive, and we're gonna find him. And yeah. uh, those nefarious uh, Vietnamese—they're they're just tough negotiators, but we're yep. tougher, right? Um, 
which is, you know, I mean, like there's a whole process of grief that families are going through that you're essentially just ripping the bandage back off and be like, no, I want you to continue pretending this is real. Right. Um, the U.S. also had full POW lists from the Vietnamese at all times during the war. Uh, Nixon would just artificially inflate the lists, right, uh, to make sure because he's worried that, uh, OK, what if I make a crazy demand like we'll stop bombing if you release uh, POWs from you know these camps and they do it? Right. Which he's worried they would do because the Vietnamese, it turns out, were actually good actors in the whole negotiation process. <laughs> so he's worried they might actually do. So he just put phantom people on the list so that yeah. there was no situation where they could access they could accidentally release all the prisoners. Right. They could always say, no, no, there's more there. I know there's there. Here's the names. Right. So essentially totally created by the Nixon administration to just prolong the war, right? They'd always say, like, we can't end the war till all the POWs and MIA are released, right? Then once the war ended, uh, when they signed the treaty with Vietnam to end the war, uh, one of the things the U.S. agreed to at the time, because we were a little over the barrel at the moment, uh, because the whole military had completely gone into rebellion. <laughs> we couldn't, like, actively <laughs> use it anymore. Um uh, they had us a little over the barrel, so we agreed to pay reparations, right? We agreed that we had clear mines, we had clear cluster bomblets, and we'd pay reparations to Vietnam for the enormous damage that had been done to their country by the United States over the previous two decades. Uh, wouldn't you know it that Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter both figured out we don't got to pay reparations, because they still got our POWs and MIA over there. Ah. <laughs> A little loophole we've made for ourselves. Ah. And this then became the bargaining chip of the POW MIA thing is, sorry, Vietnam, can't clear any minefields for you or even tell you where they are until the fictional people that we're looking for <laughs> get returned. <laughs> so that was the sort of political basis of it. After that, it took on a cultural resonance of its own, where it was put into movies, Rambo 2, Missing in Action, right? All those fucking shit movies from the 80s. Uh, and then Ross Ross Perot picked it up in the 80s as a, a genuinely insane rich guy from Texas and tried to mount a rescue mission in Vietnam. And the U.S. government had to intervene several times to keep Ross Perot from sending mercenaries to Vietnam to to, re- to rescue the, the POWs. We need <laughs> the to US bring back weren't there. <laughs> yeah. just these crazy rich crank <laughs> candidates that somehow had a like a weirdly outsized grip on america you know yeah exactly right? <laughs> like why, I, why do i know the name ross perot right like, yeah. like wow. and, and the thing is it's like you know you probably you know a lot of people's memory is that when he ran as a third party candidate in 92 and 96 him doing the like deficit charts or Let's whatever and the, the great budget. sucking sound or whatever but his the reason why people knew him why he could do that third party candidacy was because of the pow bullshit in the 80s and 90s he had hired a guy literally from soldier of fortune magazine from like the back pages of soldier of fortune magazine <laughs> yeah. to like mount a commando raid luckily the guy you know luckily the guy didn't do anything stupid he just stole all of ross Perot's money which nice, is exactly nice. what you should expect yeah. to have happen to you if you're on come the- on i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh yeah that's why all that shit still exists and i i'm convinced the reason why people refuse to just accept it and let it go is the vietnam derangement syndrome We'd have to admit that we just lied about everything in Vietnam and yeah. nobody can like do that anymore. <laughs> Essentially, it's a huge cope. 
yeah. is like it's cope. what yeah, it's it is. Cope. It's That's cope. the word for it. It's cope. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. All right. Well, excited. By the way, there's a very good book by a guy named H. Bruce Franklin called uh, MIA or Myth Making in Action. Uh, that It goes through the whole history of the POW MIA thing. Uh, very good. Worth reading. Uh, H. Bruce Franklin, uh, you know, came up on our show, a guy who was kicked out of Stanford for being based. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have, two, you have two choices in this world. You can be, you know, <laughs> employed or based, employed or based. <laughs> Those are your choices in the end. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I want to just we have a couple more things to go through, but I want to just talk about some stuff about political violence real fast. Uh, we talked about a lot of political violence uh, in the COINTELPRO episode, and I just wanted to bring up, a, you know, the other things that happened that we didn't bring up, like the Attica prison uprising, which was put down by Governor Rockefeller in New York uh, with extreme violence. Uh, they just went in shooting everybody in the prison yard. Uh, the police, when they raided Attica, killed all the guards. That, basically, all the guard deaths you see from the Attica prison uprising were all killed by the state police, which is pretty crazy. Uh, but, you know, super violent uh, retaking of the prison. But also, that was 1971. Also around that time, you know, we're familiar with MLK's assassination, Fred Hampton, right? You know, uh, RFK's assassination, right? Uh, there was also a lot of other weird things happening. George Jackson, who was a well-known uh, Black Panther uh, who had been imprisoned and was an advocate for prisoners' rights, uh, was shot and killed escaping from prison <laughs> oh now everybody including his cellmates and things like that as uh, basically like yeah the guards said that he had yard time and took him out into the yard by himself and then shot him <laughs> claiming he was trying to escape uh nobody really believes the the prison escape story but i think this gets to a point about all this stuff uh, Walter Ruther was another one in 1970. Walter Ruther was the head of the United Auto Workers and was one of the more radical union leaders in the United States. Uh, he was flying in a private jet and uh, they were doing a, you know, instruments guided landing coming out of the mist and just ran into the fucking ground. Right. <laughs> what made it strange was that uh, two years prior, Walter and his brother, who was also an organizer at the UAW, had a very similar incident happen while landing in a private jet or private plane, right? Where the uh, pilots, though, because they could see they there wasn't mist or whatever or fog, uh, because they could see they realized their altimeter wasn't reading correctly, almost as if somebody had you know tampered with it or something, <laughs> and were able to crash land the plane successfully. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I only bring these up because look instrument guided landings flown by a moron pilot who works for a private jet company or whatever right uh they're sketchy and people do crash yeah but then again right <laughs> you know then again Labor walter leader. ruther's family thinks that you know 
that sub that the the plane mm. was messed with. It doesn't help that the CIA assassination manual has a thing about messing with altimeters <laughs> on planes. <laughs> George Jackson. I mean, I think for people at the time, they're like, well, I mean, you know, people do try and escape from prison, and they were he was locked up for life or whatever. Maybe he tried to make a go at it, and they got him right. But then again, maybe not. Mm. They, they fucking murdered him, right? You know. Uh, Sirhan Sirhan seems like a weird guy, right? MLK, was it the Memphis police just disappeared that day and it was just this one, you know, one strange guy, right? The whole thing, right? The whole kit and caboodle, right? It makes people insane. (laughs) Yeah. Part of political violence and political assassinations is making people crazy. Yeah, I mean it's also it's a physical op and it's also a psychological op at the same time. Like it, it truly like forments this incredible paranoia that you know you can't even trust anything because these wild conspiracies, when you say them out loud, are actually true, right? And so yeah. they're not. It's not far fetched anymore to mm-hmm. to think that you know the person sitting right next to you might be a cop, right? Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> Or, you know, that plane landing that might have been the CIA, you know, it's like that's that's something that because these assassinations actually got pulled off and so much unrest happened is that now you can't really have cohesion. Right. Like this is happening. Yeah, it's it's part of the sort of COINTELPRO program, right, of uh, breaking groups up, right, creating breaking the social ties between individuals and things like that by creating a general sense of paranoia. Uh, you know, at the time. Right. And I mean, for like, you know, say for like the Black Panther Party, you know, part of what broke the organization up in the end was the paranoia and constant recriminations back and forth between leadership and things like that, that essentially broke up the ability to like cohere as a real organization. Right. Yeah. But the problem is a lot of those guys were cops. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. the recriminations aren't like, they're not necessarily true, like one to one, like everybody who was called a cop was a cop. But there was definitely cops within the Black there Panther Party. There. Like, like the like, FBI you know? did infiltrate the Black Panther Party. Like there, yeah. they it, absolutely there were. Yeah, and it's the thing, and I mean, it's what the Walter Ruthless story is made the better one of the bunch because, like, I could one hundred percent see it both ways, right? Yeah, and it's the fact that you really can't be sure is what makes it even all the more effective. Right. You know, maybe Sirhan Sirhan is just a weirdo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like, uh, right. But but you're just left in this air of sort of not knowing. And I think it uh, it makes it hard. You know, it makes it hard to have trust. Right. Makes it hard to uh, have faith in other people and things like that. Right. And I, I think that's a, an aspect of political violence that maybe we didn't talk about as much when we talked about COINTELPRO, but it's worth sort of thinking about, right? Uh, don't get lost, you know, beyond the details of was this an op or wasn't it an op, the the very fact that you have to sit there and ask that question and actually sit down and consider it is probably not good psychologically for most people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Well, uh, Munya, I think we should conclude on this uh, sort of question here, which is uh, what happened to the American left? There was all this oh. good stuff we talked about in the 30s, yeah. 40s, 50s, 60s, right? What happened to it? Explain to all of us uh, why we're so fucked. <laughs> what oh, what went mean, wrong? They the, should have. The, they should have read my book. Is what the, they should have. I, I made that, a little pamphlet. Yeah. They should have read it. <laughs> they should have no, read no. my pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> I had all the answers in them right there. Yeah, that's the classic. And you didn't answer. listen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this the short answer is is they got beat. Yeah. The short answer is yeah, is they so. lost. And, you know, what happens with loss is I think you have a lot of splitting. You have a lot of, uh, you know, paranoia like we were just talking about. Um, You don't have the social bonds and social trust that you need to really build a mass movement. Um, When you get beat and when the chips are falling against you, um, I think that it it really does something zaps something in people's brains psychologically right i don't mm-hmm. want to get so to- totally into just like you know psychology and science right because it's like more than that but i really do think it does generationally like zap something in you like the mm-hmm. will the mo- the morale um the fact that when you're like coming down from a really big movement that fails and ultimately your life is now and everyone else's life is getting worse in the capitalist yeah, class, you yeah, know, won yeah. that battle. Right. Um, that really, that really does damaging effects to a whole generation of people, I think. And now you have then people raised in the next generation with that demoralization. Right. Yeah. yeah. People will retreat into, um, you know, to get like meaning out of their lives instead of trying to fight back and push. Cause they didn't, if you know, just, wasn't enough didn't work the conditions weren't right for a whole host of reasons um i think it becomes subsumed in individual identity right and assumed in like this obsession of self um you know what i think you could even see this on a more like you know micro scale or just even like aftershocks of this today like there's this whole anti-intellectual movement today especially with young people i think and what i've like and not all young people obviously but certainly um you know a corner of them are like saying like oh well you know uh me five years ago me like you know uh you know figuring out the way the world works and was like endlessly like you know uh in this pursuit of knowledge and now i'm just uh you know lifting weights at the gym and like not caring about all that because it doesn't matter right Mm-hmm. That's that 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 attitude comes up in the face of defeat, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. But it, it, it does happen um, when you get beat, I think, in, a, in such a major way, like the American left did in the 70s. Right. This was like really a movement like uh, from the New Deal all the way up to the 70s. So this is decades. We're not talking about just a presidential election. We're not talking about just like one labor movement or one you know, singular issue, right? This is an entire economy now changing in the way towards the capitalist class with neoliberalism. Um, Mm -hmm. And now like, you know, your own identity sometimes then just gets commodified and it's this retreat, I think, um, which is not, you know, a knock on these people. I think that that is just what happens when such a crushing blow, um, you know, happens to the labor movement. Labor labor, uh, membership starts to decline in unions, right? Uh, mm. wages stay flat suddenly 
a lot of the uh, uh, mass austerity starts to, you know, get imposed onto you and everyone around you. Right. That sucks. Yeah. You're waiting. And now, I mean, like you're waiting in line for uh, gas for like two hours and stuff in the seventies, you know, like, yeah. I mean, it's just like life just, it just sucks. And like, sometimes like, I think people at eventually, like when you get dealt that significant blow, you'll just like focus, just focus on yourself without any broad, uh, you know, uh, attachment to these uh, bonds that have been severed, you know, mm-hmm. you have to have a left movement. There has to actually be solidarity, right? And there has to be strong social bonds and trust, and all of that eroded, I think, in the seventies, and we're still kind of seeing that now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to give an example of an individual, right? Uh, you know, the case of David Horowitz is really interesting, and you know, he was this guy who you know, was on the left for the most part. He, you know, had gone to college uh, in London where he had joined up with a British Trotskyist group. Dun, dun, dun. But anyways, (laughs) um, but by all accounts, I mean, you know, he was doing anti-Vietnam work, all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, When he came back to the United States, he, you know, became one of the co-editors of Ramparts, right? Which was a left journal at the time. He, you know, was an editor of In These Times when it uh, was started in the 1970s, right? I mean, this guy, which he'll never cease to remind you, has, uh, you know, sterling left credentials, right? And then, you know, I mean, once everything fell apart, I think like a lot of people who really didn't believe, you know, I mean, we weren't like true believers or anything of anything, right? Like, they saw that, like, you know, on my own as an individual, I can maybe get ahead if I just kind of, you know, renounce some of that shit. Right. Yeah. And so in the 1980s, he did the heel turn. Right. Became one of Reagan's favorite, like, guys, you know, punching left. Right. And now he does the dangerous professors list. So if you're ever wondering why you're like uncle is scared of college <laughs> professors. like. Yeah. You know, David Horowitz is the one who convinced everybody that college professors are like teaching Marxism to your children and shit and all this kind of stuff. Right. And look, he got to the 1980s and he realized, like, there's no future for me as a leftist, at least not in the way that I want to live with the money that I want to make and all this (laughs) kind of stuff. And he just went to the other side. Now, most people didn't do something that fucking shitty or that ridiculous david horse is a particularly fucking spineless you know whatever worm of a human being but a lot of people were like the orgs i used to belong to splintered and fallen away the movement the future that i thought was going to happen is clearly not happening and maybe i should just uh go back to school and get a job and finance right yeah <laughs> maybe i should Screw just it. <laughs> a lot of people did that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the hippie to like Republican or whatever, the hippie to yuppie pipeline or whatever bullshit people like to talk about. It's like, that's how it actually happened for most people was like left with a sort of demoralization and the, you know, with no like hope of success in that other way. They just went back to individual pursuits, yep. which people will do, right? And individualism is bad. Right? <laughs> like, if you want a society that gives a shit about, you know, social values, uh, you know, uh, individualism, it leads to groups splitting up, leads to cults, which were big in the 70s, are all Huge. like individualist retreats from social movements, right? Uh, yeah, at least the the antisocial age. behavior, too. I mean, if you really want to yeah, go true yeah. crime, like all of those, you know, uh, serial killing incidents, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's certainly there's a case to be made that's tied to that. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, also things like the New Age movement and stuff like that. I mean, these yep. are all just retreats into the self, right? Yep. Abandoning yep. the social, retreating into the self. and Going into uh, spirituality, I, right? Not, not like, you know, like the typical like spirituality, but I'm talking about like kind of either like, you know, instead in in absence of like collective organizing right yeah, yeah um yeah. you know just going into like astrology for instance you know yeah. <laughs> like or like everybody getting into weird eastern uh mysticism right that was mm-hmm. sold to them as like yoga or whatever right which is all that like half cooked uh like horse shit that somebody saw on a flyer in like india one day and then like you know they it took back. it back to they california half, yeah they yeah. half understood it and like brought it back <laughs> to california and now have like a full-blown cult <laughs> built around them right you know um that kind of shit right which was all about like you know you have to focus on yourself right you got to focus yep. on you know, your you know, self-improvement all this kind of stuff right which was an abandonment of the social uh you know as as a goal right and yeah if that's your main goal we're not saying that like you know focusing on self-improvement is bad right but like you know we're saying saying that like making that the center of your life without less of any other broader you know analysis or being a part of anything bigger than that is Mm -hmm. just a retreat right like that's 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 we're talking about cope it's a major cope you know Yeah, (laughs) yeah it's cope it's cope right and i mean there's a reason why that stuff got big when it got big right you know, it's not to say that like it's all 100 percent bullshit or anything, but it's no, like it got no. big when it got big for a reason. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's for capitalists. Right. That's an easy foothold for them to work from. Right. That That's easy for them to start working on you. Right. Because now they can sell you individual tailored products. Right. They can sell mm-hmm. you your individual tailored lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And now like uh, basically being like it, it turned in it basically from like mass politics, like now into the 70s, that those ideas of like organizing against the system then got commodified. And now it's about what what products they buy. Yeah. Right. Or who which ones are good and which ones are bad. Which one what what do I wear to see? signify like you know that i'm a part of a certain thing right it was it's it became a commodified aesthetic right instead of anything else what's the classic uh you know american uh tagline of the be the change you want to see in the world or whatever right and not understanding that as like man i should really like change something fundamental about my life but it's more of like i need to make sure that i have the appropriate uh reusable like bag while wearing the appropriate like you know shoes that weren't endorsing donald trump or whatever mm-hmm. you know it, it becomes an, i'm a, not a gonna consumer... buy you know certainly buy the correct pillows of course yeah it's like it's a consumer Recycle. aesthetic at that point <laughs> as opposed to like any sort of actual politics right yeah. and there's a reason why that catchphrase became the big thing that like uh bored middle class people would tell themselves when they were trying to find meaning in their lives right and it's because it's a consumer aesthetic that's easy to operate within in the United States, right? Yeah, everything Whereas, is consumed into subsumed into consumption, and yeah. the critique of production or anything larger than that is just besides the point. Yeah, and it keeps you away from yeah criticizing the <laughs> very basic elements on which the society is constructed, <laughs> right. the base, and why it might be creating the superstructure <laughs> that you currently are interacting. Right. Yep. Thinking about that on any sort of deeper level. Right. Um, it, it, it helps uh, prevent you from that. 
Well, listeners, uh, we'll have more for you next week in that uh, we're going to have a very special bonus episode where we're going to talk about the movies uh, with a very special guest. Uh, I don't want to say, but might begin with R and end oh, with Ebert. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We're, we're seancing him back space. in to come back in and talk we to us. We trained chat GPT to, um, <laughs> to, to adopt as We forced chat GPT to watch every single Ebert and Roper uh, video and read yeah. every single like uh, movie review that he ever had. And we essentially now have a perfect one-to-one personality yeah. of Roger Ebert, who's yeah, going to be actually, speaking to us in Microsoft Sam voice, which is going to be awesome. And I must say, Moody, I cheated a little bit. I didn't want to copy paste all the movie reviews in there. So I just copied the titles in and I just put the review for Freddy Got Fingered in there for all of them. So <laughs> I, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Yeah. <laughs> next movie. Uh, but yeah, we're going to have an episode. And then, you know what? We're going to take a little break for a little bit so we can really think about the 80s and 90s. But we'll be back. Yeah shorter break than last time i promise yeah, yeah don't worry don't don't panic it's not gonna be like last time yeah we just need, uh, we just need to cook in the stew a little bit yeah there's no there's no housing issues involved this time no so no i'm not let's go a little quicker i got my renewal letter and i and Ooh. our rent only got raised by 88 dollars uh which Ugh. is uh you know <laughs> the it fact that i celebrate that, only, that right? only i'm like whoa dude this is like rent stabilized housing yeah like yeah. only 88 yeah well you know it's better than a th- uh, twelve hundred dollars uh you know last time which like basically delayed our podcast by seven months uh but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah this is the state of new york um you know we're celebrating like m- double digit raises in uh, <laughs> in rent as like a victory uh <laughs> yeah just oh man incredible <laughs> i remember a time uh, long ago when your rent didn't just automatically go up <laughs> every <Right>. time you <laughs> got a new lease man what a crazy time to be alive um, i can't imagine it <laughs> God, this world sucks so much. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, all right. Well, join us next time to hear more about how we got here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. And now it's winter. It's winter in America. know it's winter Lord knows it's winter in America And ain't nobody fighting cause nobody knows what to say Save your soul from a winter in America
give his freedom and liberty and access to a land get rid of this abusive uh, government. dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de ese Space.